This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. We had a really interesting uh, decision come down recently. And, and it wasn't a big surprise, obviously, but it was significant in that I, I, don't, I can't remember the last time anyone in Canada was actually convicted of polygamy. And uh, I suppose it puts us on a trajectory of uh, this law being tested before the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, but technically, under Section 293, I mean, we've had a law against polygamy basically in one form or another since 1893. Uh, any kind of conjugal union between more than two people is illegal. Uh, and, and the law is pretty clear in that sense, uh, that it's not about men being guilty of a crime for having too many wives. It's anybody who's involved, or for that matter, anybody who you know, pro- proceeds over a ceremony uh, presides over a ceremony would be guilty of breaking the law too doesn't even have to be recognized officially as a marriage you don't even have to prove that there was any kind of sexual intercourse consummating the relationship basically if you got three people living together you can just assume that they're involved in a polyamorous relationship and uh, therefore they've they've broken the law so what's weird about the case in bc with these polygamists and bountiful is that no women have been charged just just the men uh, so it raises some interesting questions, I guess, about these these kinds of relationships. Uh, obviously, you know, with someone like Winston Blackmore, for example, the fact that he had, uh, I think, 25 wives, that's a kind of different situation. But what about, more generally speaking, what might be called then polyamorous relationships? We're not for religious reasons, but you have three or four people living together in basically a conjugal relationship. I mean, is that something that should be uh, illegal? What are the implications for for family law in Canada with these kinds of relationships? Uh, there's a, a new study on that uh, released by the Canadian Insta, rather the Canadian Research Institute for Law and the Family, called "Polyamorous Relationships and Family Law in Canada." Kind of explores some of these issues. Uh, joining us on the line is uh, John Paul E. Boyd, uh, author of this study, fellow of the International Academy of Family Lawyers and Executive Director of the Canadian Research Institute for Law and the Family. John Paul, welcome to the program. Thanks. All right. Well, in terms of the context of this report, uh, tell us what you mean by polyamorous relationships. Well, uh, there's a bit of a distinction between uh, people that are involved in a polyamorous relationship and people that are involved in a polygamous relationship. Um, You correctly pointed out that Winston Blackmore and his uh, fellow patriarch, James Oler, were convicted of polygamy. uh, And, uh, you know, frankly, by by their own admission, they admitted that they had married multiple uh, spouses. And as a result, they had clearly contravened the criminal code prohibition and uh, and were rightfully convicted. Uh, Polyamory, though, is something a bit different. Um, the original legislation against polygamy uh, was enacted in 1893 um, specifically to deal with uh, the fundamentalist uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and their doctrine of celestial marriage, which required men to have multiple wives uh, as part of their ticket to paradise. Um, Obviously in the afterlife, not in this one, but in in any event, uh, it was part part of legislation that was sweeping 
through North America as a response to what was then uh, Mormon church doctrine. The difference, though, is that uh, in a in a contemporary polyamorous relationship, uh, first of all, there, there's no you know religious or or civil marriage ceremony because frankly those are unlawful in Canada, um, and they are people that are choosing to live together consensually and sometimes not even living together. Sometimes these are just relationships uh, where uh, you know where people are are involved uh, at the, at the same time in different relationships of varying degrees of commitment and longevity and different expectations. And so the difference between... Sorry? No, no, go ahead. Yeah, so the difference between the the polygamous marriage is that, you know, these are patriarchal societies. Uh, The men are proceeding under a direction from God, and the women are are entering into these relationships on penalty of the hereafter. Uh, But in polyamorous relationships, um, everybody's in those relationships knowingly and consensually. We did a survey of uh, more than 500 500, uh, individuals from across Canada who are engaged in these relationships, and, and we asked them questions about things like, you know, do you value honesty? Do you value equality regardless of gender, equality regardless of parenting status? And uh, and those relationships, the people that responded to our survey all said that they endorsed these values about equality and freedom and liberty, uh, you know, 98% uh, plus. So very high support for those sorts of things. And so clearly, these are relationships that people are choosing to enter into knowingly uh, and without the threat of uh, some sort of religious sanction in the hereafter. That's interesting. But, you know, I mean, when one reads Section 293 of the Criminal Code, right, there, there's no mention of uh, religion. I mean, it basically says anyone, everyone, as it says, who enters into any kind of conjugal union with, uh, with more than one person at the same time is guilty of a crime. So the the criminal code as it's written, even though it's aimed more, as you say, at, at the practices in the FLDS, I mean, would, it would encompass any kind of polyamorous relationship, it seems. Well, no. Um, and uh, that's, that's where uh, we have a difference of uh, view. Um, the key, as you pointed out, lies in that word conjugal. And it's peculiar because conjugal was in the original 1893 version of the legislation, which also, by the way, explicitly referred to Mormons and the Mormon religion. Uh, that's gone now. It's part of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. You can't have that, that sort of specific uh, religious uh, targeting, I suppose you'd call it. But the but we have court decisions in British Columbia and Ontario that interpret conjugal as not meaning a kind of common-law relationship where you're just living together, but as requiring marriage or a marriage ceremony of some sort. And so, yeah, you'd look at that legislation, and you'd think the conjugal is going to criminal, criminalize anything that looks, that looks and smells like a marriage. Uh, but uh, we have court decisions that have said that, that, that a actual marriage or a ceremony, a rite of some sort, is actually required to qualify as conjugal. Well, the law itself says whether or not it is by law recognized as a binding form of marriage. Well, and the reason for that is that uh, the basic rule of the common law, six of the 1600s, has been that any marriage subsequent to the first is by law void, right? So you have to have a way of capturing, in order to qualify as bigamous or polygamous, you have to have a way of capturing subsequent marriages, and which is why they're referring to a form of marriage. Uh, but the case law in, in BC and Ontario, and you're quite right, by the way, that there's been very few prosecutions for bigamy or polygamy, for that matter. But the case law says that a, that a form of marriage is required to qualify as conjugal within the meaning of Section 293 of the Criminal Code. 
Interesting. So do you get the sense that, that uh, those living in, in polyamorous relationships are, are nervous because maybe they're, they're sort of on the edge of some of these, these potentially legal issues, that they, they fear a possible prosecution, or is, is this largely something that they would be unconcerned about? Well, I can tell you, like, without a shadow of a doubt, that there is a lot of anxiety among the uh, Canadians who see themselves as polyamorous because, precisely because they're worried about whether or not their relationship is criminal in nature. But um, my legal opinion on the matter is that it's not. There's nothing wrong with it as long as you don't purport to have a ceremony of some sort that, that, that sanctifies or sanctions the relationship. But, you know, if you have uh, two or more people living together or not living together, but engaging in simultaneous consensual relationships, I don't think there's anything illegal about that. Well, there certainly shouldn't be. I, I think that's, that's you know, the heart of it. If we're talking about Agreed. consenting adults, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, and that's what's weird about Section 293 as well, because it doesn't identify who the victim would be. So I, I'm, I'm puzzled as to why it would be criminal in the first place. Certainly these kinds of polyamorous relationships you're talking about, I mean, it just, I mean, it's, it seems even more obvious. Well, the very first legislation that we had about bigamy in the Commonwealth came from England in 1603. Um, and, and the legislation at the time, you had commentators were talking about how it corrupts men. It is, uh, it's, it's somehow uh, morally corrupt. It, it uh, leads society into perdition, things like that. Um, and in 2011 in B.C., there was actually a hearing before the Supreme Court that was uh, asked to address the specific issue of the constitutionality of Section 290. And uh, the federal government called a witness who's a, who's a professor at a religious university in the United States to give evidence about what were the harms of, of polygamy. And among other things, that this professor, a contemporary professor uh, of law, said that the harms from polygamy had to do with uh, the corruption of men, the inflammation of lust, um, the deprivation of these uh, different wives of their spouse's attention because apparently couldn't hold one car- more than one conversation at the same time, and a few other things that, that had to do with some beliefs and attitudes that are more in line with what you see in 1603 and the subsequent legislation in, in, uh, that I would characterize as Victorian in terms of its social morality. Interesting. John Paul, stand by. I'm going to take a quick break here. We'll come back. I want to continue this conversation. Uh, find out what the implications of this are. And I mean, what happens if and when children uh, come into the mix in, in these kinds of relationships? Uh, John Paul Boyd is uh, with us talking about this new study for the Canadian Research Institute for Law and the Family. We're back with more right after this. Right, welcome back. Talking about this uh, interesting new paper, Exploring Polyamorous uh, amorous Relationships and Family Law in Canada. Uh, John Paul E. Boyd is uh, author of this study, executive director of the Canadian Research Institute for Law and the Family. Um, so I mean, we sort of looked at the question of whether these might run afoul of Section 293, but these wouldn't be recognized, though, still as, as relationships in Canada, would they? How does, how does the law address that? Well, the, the, the law on domestic relations um, is not concerned about every kind of relationship, just the kinds of relationship that qualify people as spouses uh, in Alberta as adult interdependent partners or as parents or as guardians. Um, and so family law isn't so much concerned about counting the number of adults and making sure it's all within the prescribed number. Um, but it's about, uh, you know, to, to what extent are you in a relationship that's legally recognized, which gives rise to certain rights and obligations. So, for example, 
if you qualify as a spouse in, in Alberta, that's because you're married to someone, um, you may have an obligation to pay spousal support, um, and you may have an obligation to divide uh, property. But if you don't qualify as a spouse, uh, as an adult interdependent partner, maybe there's an obligation to pay spousal support, but you're also not caught by the matrimonial property regime. On the other hand, uh, the law about children is much different and much more expansive. Um, for example, with respect to child support, oh, you can be obliged to pay child support whether you're a biological parent of a child or not. It all has to do about the nature of your relationship with the other parent and sometimes whether or not you're a guardian of the child, even if you had no intention of assuming a financial obligation. But with respect to more important things about custody and access and things like that, the laws across Canada allow anyone with an interest in a child to apply to have guardianship of the child and apply to have a schedule of time with the child. Um, And the court's only concern there is what arrangement is in the best interests of the child. And so if you look at the family law legislation across Canada, the the Divorce Act doesn't apply because under the Divorce Act you have to be a married spouse. Mm -hmm. Uh, So assuming that you're not one of those, the, the legislation in Canada is a patchwork. You know, in British Columbia, a child can have as many as six legal parents if you have the child with the benefit of assisted reproduction. And all of those parents or all of those people are parents for all purposes of the law of British Columbia, including the laws that talk about guardianship and parenting time and child support. Um, and, in, and in certain provinces like British Columbia and Manitoba, the, the term spouse is defined as including cohabiting couples that aren't married as long as they've lived together for a certain amount of time. And in those provinces and in Saskatchewan, unmarried people have exactly the same property rights as married couples do. <laughs> and so the question is, can you be, can you be simultaneously a, a legal spouse to more than one person? And in British Columbia, I, I, it's, it's my belief reading legislation that you can. And just before this causes too much concern to your listeners, Think about a situation where a married person um, has separated from his wife and uh, time has passed and enough time that the person is now in a new relationship and maybe they've moved in together. And it can certainly happen, and, and it has happened in family law cases in the past, that someone is still is separated but still legally married while suddenly qualifying as a spouse or as an adult interdependent partner of somebody else. So you, you're, you're, you are, in effect, having two concurrent spousal relationships, which each give rise to potentially an obligation to pay, child, to pay spousal support, and potentially a right to divide family property, um, and and we we've dealt with the situation under the law, so it's it's not exactly that much of a surprise. But there are provinces like Alberta, where you know unmarried couples have very limited rights and entitlements, and in places like that, the law tends to be a little more a little more uptight, and uh, and people who are in polyamorous cohabiting relationships may or may not qualify for benefits or the ability to apply for certain relief. Yeah, interesting, because I mean, you can have a situation where you have a couple recognized as, as common law, the relationship ends, um, houses sold or assets are divided. So how much more complicated would that get then if we're talking about three or four people? Well, it all depends on what the legislation says. So in Alberta, you know, you have to be married in order to qualify for property division, but unmarried uh, parties do have 
uh, certain kinds of rights under the law of the unjust enrichment of the constructive trust. Don't worry about that, except to say that it's a very complicated and highly uncertain way of staking a claim to property that only one other person happens to own. But in provinces like British Columbia, where it appears that you can have multiple concurrent spouses without running afoul of the law, the question has to do with how do, how does the law talk about property division? And in BC, you know, uh, the law says that each spouse gets one half the family property. And of course, if you're in a situation where you've got multiple spouses, it really pays to be the first one out. First one out, you get half the property. The next person out seems to get half of the remaining half. And then the third person out gets half of the remaining half. Is there a need to, to, to recognize that these relationships exist, whatever we might think about them? And do, do, do we need to, to make changes to, to any of these laws? Well, you know, uh, I honestly, I mean, this is important. There are a significant number of Canadians who are involved in these kinds of relationships. And right now, uh, many of them are involved in these relationships without any sort of legal recognition about what's going to happen when they break down. But is this as important, for example, as uh, recognizing the rights of same-sex couples? And, and, you know, with the greatest of respect, I I don't think so. These are these are issues that will work themselves out over over the fullness of time. But that being said, you do have polyamorous families that have to make awfully difficult decisions about things like which one of my spouses will I nominate as my spouse for the purposes of my workplace health and dental insurance? Yeah. How do we deal with issues like CPP and EI? What about benefits that that are that are geared to the number of dependents and the household family income? Do we count everybody's income? And what about the Canada Pension Plan? I mean, when, when you divide that, the, the law is pretty clear. We're only talking about one other spouse. But what do you do when you have multiple people in that situation? And so there are difficult issues, without a doubt. And, you know, for me, the hardest one to, to, to look at are situations where, you know, uh, a family has to make decisions about which one of them is going to get health and dental benefits. Um, but, you know, I mean, when we think about the march of progress and social change, uh, the whole same-sex marriage uh, issue that really came to fruition in Ontario in 2003 and resulted in the Civil Marriage Act in 2005, that all started in 1995 with, uh, with the Egan decision, which concerned uh, entitlement to same-sex pension benefits. So, uh, you know, if, if that's what led down the slope to the legalization of same-sex marriage, maybe a decision like that, which does involve palpable and awfully important social benefits, is going to be the thing that triggers the march towards the recognition of polyamorous unions. Some fascinating questions. Uh, John Paul, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate this. Thank you very much, Rob. All right. That is uh, John Paul Boyd. Uh, He's executive director of the Canadian Research Institute for Law and the Family and uh, author of this study. I guess if you, that's your thing. If you're getting into one of those relationships, uh, maybe you know what you're getting into. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.